Do you ever daydream about visiting specific neighborhoods, past or present, for the food you might find? Perhaps Paris in the 1920s with the Lost Generation. Or maybe Provence in the early 90s, a la A Year in Provence. Brooklyn, maybe before it became as gentrified as it is now. Maybe Brooklyn now. I think back on Rodino in Piedmont in Italy, and I cannot wait to visit that tiny village and its surrounding countryside restaurants again. But there is a neighborhood that might surprise you. A neighborhood that is up and coming, but already full of cool stuff. A neighborhood with amazing coffee and amazing coffee shops, which are not necessarily the same places all the time, but here they seem to go hand in hand. It's a neighborhood with takeaway pizza and craft beer and more craft beer, and it's walkable. And there are restaurants, more and more interesting restaurants. There's a natural wine bar, of course. Among the restaurants, there is an Italian restaurant that has been growing in stature over the years, and it's about to grow significantly in size, physically. And this neighborhood is going to grow and change some more. And I do think it's worth your while to see this neighborhood now, while you can, before it changes more and more. It might get better by changing. But right now, it is all promise and open sky. There is possibility. It is a culinary frontier, and it feels like it. And yes, of course, it's in Las Vegas. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Welcome back. It is great to be together again. I'm Graham. This is Chef Demoni. This is my podcast about food. Longtime listeners know that I talk to chefs, I talk to lawyers, I talk a whole lot about the food scene in Las Vegas. And what can I tell you? I'm a food geek and a Vegas geek. Today, I'm bringing you an interview from my latest trip to Las Vegas, and I'm really excited to share it with you. If you haven't heard it yet, the last episode of Chef Demoni provides a really good snapshot, a mid-trip report on the culinary goings-on for this latest trip. But today, we are headed to the Arts District, and the Arts District is the neighborhood you need to visit. It's close to the Strip, but so utterly, completely different. It is really cool. And I think it's at a fascinating and fun point in its history. Basically, I say go now before it is completely discovered and completely developed. It is getting there quickly, but for now there is still a sense of frontier, of being out there, of what's coming next. I absolutely love spending time in the Arts District. And that is due in large part to one person, today's guest, chef james trees my wife and i and two good friends we recently had brunch at chef's arts district restaurant this is called esther's kitchen and it was as it always is a delight my thanks to james and to eric from esther's because they in fact hosted our brunch basically refused to bring us a bill which was unexpected but very appreciated so thank you both for that it was it was so good i talk about it on the last episode Thanks also for the tour of the new space that Esther's is going to be moving into just down the block. I got to tour that space with Chef, and it is also a delight. It's going to be huge. So go to Esther's now so you can say that you went to the original, and then you'll be able to see the new space as well. You're going to hear about the original today, 
and you'll hear about the new space. And having seen it just before we started the interview, I had to abandon what I had planned as my first question and ask Chef instead about what is going to be an amazing new fresh pasta station in the new restaurant, making fresh pasta to order during service. We all know that fresh is best, even if it is like, oh, these were in the, you know, freezer for three hours. It still changes the texture and the density of those things. I cannot wait to experience that new space. You're going to hear today that the current Esther space is going to turn into a fine dining spot. Chef James thinks Las Vegas is now ready for that, for his take on fine dining. Fine dining in the Arts District. I tell you, this neighborhood is happening and it's evolving, so so see it. Today I asked Chef about how, how exactly his food tastes so good. I call it deceptively simple, but it always tastes better than I think it will, and I have high expectations. Now, some of his answer I had guessed, uh, I had predicted that he might mention, you know, local suppliers and the importance of farmers and those sorts of things, the best ingredients, really knowing your suppliers. The farmers there are my friends. They're the people that I cook for their weddings. I cook for their kids' graduations. I know their farms intimately. But another part of Chef's answer really surprised me, and that that other part made me doubly glad that I had asked this question. So think about diving down the food science rabbit hole. You're going to hear some interesting terms today from Chef James Trees. He also talks about the importance of chefs tasting their foods, and not just the chefs, but managers, servers, cooks, dishwashers. We get into sourdough bread and how exactly James captures the local environment quite literally within his bread. And you're also going to hear about some really exciting new bread technology that is coming to the new larger Esther's space. So bread geeks, I asked some questions here for you today. You'll also hear about Chef's start in the industry. It was early and it was intense. He worked for a year and a half for free. And Vegas Geeks, you are going to hear about how the culinary team at the Mirage convinced Steve Wynn about the importance of an internship program and how that got the career of Chef James off to an amazing start. So just picture that, cooking at the Mirage in 1996. Imagine the team that was there just pre-Bellagio, which opened in 98, and this team ended up, or much of this team, ended up staffing much of the Bellagio. We stop in at Bradley Ogden at Caesars, and you'll also hear about the challenges, but particularly the joys of operating a restaurant off-strip, about how strip restaurants really are quite constrained by high-end gambling customers and by the sheer volumes that they cover in a given service. But those limitations do not apply in other places, like the Arts District. Toward the end of our talk today, you're going to hear from Chef James on a couple of great ideas for very quick, very simple, very delicious things that you can cook at home. All right, enough from me. Let's get to the Arts District in Las Vegas between the Strip and downtown. Here's my interview from Esther's Kitchen with Chef James Trees. Well, first of all, Chef, thank you for a f- simply amazing brunch. We just wrapped up here, me, my wife, B, two of her very best friends. Uh, we could not have had a better brunch. Thanks to you. Thanks to Eric, who is sitting here with us. 
uh, for taking such good care of us. Uh, and thank you because it's been, now been close to four years since we met at Ada's in uh, uh, Summerlin, yeah. right? And then the pandemic hit, and I've wanted to talk to you on the podcast for so long. So, Chef, thanks for being here. Thanks for making time. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's really an honor to be a part of this. And thank you for coming back and remembering us at our little <laughs> restaurants in Vegas, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. It really is our pleasure. And having learned what I've just learned, I know it's not much longer that it's going to be a little restaurant in Vegas. This is going to be a really big restaurant in Vegas. You just kindly showed me the space next door that's uh, very much under construction now, but the, the bones are there. So I had another opening question, but I'm going to start here instead because it, it falls from what we were just talking about there. Tell the listeners, please, Chef, about the new fresh pasta line that's going to be at Esther's when that new space opens, what it is and why it's important. When we originally opened Esther's, we had the room that we're adjacent to right now, and that was where we made all of our bread and all of our pasta, and we were doing it as close to to order as we could. However, as the restaurant gained popularity, we had to start freezing a lot of our folded pastas, a lot of our hand-cut pastas, just because of space issues and amounts. Like we would make 10 orders of tortellini and 10 orders of agnolotti. Now our pars on those items are like 40 each per day. Um, and that's just for dinner service. We don't do any folded pasta for lunch. Going into the new space, we're going to have almost like a Din Tai Fung slash, you know, Asian, uh, noodle spot where they're hand rolling all the pastas to order. So we're actually going to be doing that stuff to order during service. And the reason why that's important is because when you freeze the pasta, the texture of the filling changes, the texture of the pasta changes, getting the pasta and the filling to be cooked properly at the same time is extremely challenging. And we all know that fresh is best, even if it is like, oh, these were in the, you know, freezer for three hours, it still changes the texture and the density of those things. So that will allow us to create a more consistent, better product for our guests and it looks cool and it's a great, it's a great addition that I've never really seen except for one place. And the, the idea came from chef Sarah Grimberg at uh Monteverde in Chicago. Uh, we were having dinner there and I was just like, what's that person up there doing? And they're like, Oh, they hand roll pasta during service. And I went up there and watched how she did it. And I was like, Oh, this is a great idea. And they had like a mirror that like went down oh, from yeah. the bar so you could like kind of see. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then I was like, oh, but she's not really, you know, she's only making like five orders at a time, something like that. I'm like, our volume is much higher. So we're going to like, we're going to have a lot more seats. So we're going to be able to have two guys there rolling possums. And then also that's a part of our pizza line. Then like that person, if we get really in the weeds of pizza, can go stretch some dough and help our guy out. Right. And uh, we're really excited about uh, all the new changes that are coming to Esther's and moving to the new space and transitioning this space to a tasting menu restaurant, which is something that we truly do believe that uh, Las Vegas needs. And I have the talent in the kitchen right now who yeah, I have people who worked at Muguritz, people who worked at, you know, at three Michelin star restaurants, you know, and I've wanted to get back to fine dining, but I just never thought that Vegas was ready for it. But now I feel like with the growth, exponentially across the city, I think we will be able to repurpose a space to a 30 seat fine dining tasting menu restaurant. I can't, I can't wait to, I can't wait to check it out, both your new space and the fine dining space. 
Well, that leads to what my, uh, I guess my original first question was, which is a- around your food generally, which is, and I think I know some of the reasons why it's as bloody tasty as it is. It's, it's what I like to call deceptively simple. The plates are, <laughs> the plates are gorgeous. They really are. But the flavors, that, and I know it's going to taste good, but the flavors that come out of those plates are more than I'm expecting. So it's a long rambling question, but it has something to do, really the question is how do you do that? Right. But to get a little more specificity around that, because I want to talk to you a little later about your strip experience mm-hmm. and experience in other places. And I know you've worked in these big, very fancy, high volume, you know, fancy pants strip places. So... How does the food taste so good? And for more specificity around that, what are you able to do here off strip that somehow the strip is not able to do? It's actually way easier than you think. It's <laughs> it's it's understanding glutamates and what actually tastes good to people. It's understanding the science of food and understanding the science of taste. You can go back to you know, Craig Kuntz's book, you can go back to the flavor Bible, you can go back to seasonality. Things always are going to taste best when they're at their peak season. So we won't have halibut on the menu for three more months. It'll be here for a month and it'll be gone. Like once it gets up to Alaska and they're shipping it and we're getting three-day halibut rather than one-day halibut, I'm I'm not interested in that product anymore. So making sure that things are served at the peak of season, understanding small local family farms in California and supporting those people for over 15 years. Because even though I am from Vegas, I spent 10 years before I opened Esther's in Southern California, specifically in Venice and the Santa Monica farmer's market. Like the farmers there are my friends. They're the people that I cook for their weddings. I cook for their kids' graduations. I know their farms intimately. I talk about like, you know, with Alex Weiser, I talk about the, the new purple potato that he's working on. And I work with, you know, uh, Phil McGrath and getting his beets specifically for our nudies because I love the earthiness of them compared to how sweet, you know, Windrose Farms beets are and knowing the difference in that and who's making it getting, if we get goats, we get them from Jimenez Farms and we only get them when they're slaughtered. They're never frozen. We get amazing product, And then we treat that product simply. That is the biggest thing that I have to like say. I've seen a million restaurants that over manipulate ingredients and they use things that are out of season and they do it because it's easy. It's be easy to have the standard Pomodoro here, but to do our pasta, we've changed the spaghetti recipe at this restaurant five times in five years. We've changed the plating four times in five years. We've changed where we source our basil from, where we get our cheeses from. We've done, we've actually upgraded all of these items from beyond commodity to specialized ingredients. And so like a two-year-age Parmesan compared to the four-year-age Parmesan that we use has more money. It tastes better. It just makes a difference. Yeah. And we just sprinkle that crack right over the top of it and hand it off to people. And that's (laughs) the move, right? And so it's like understanding glutamates is understanding what things carry flavors. Like we use a ton of anchovy where people don't even know that we use anchovies. We use a ton of like, we don't ever cook with raw garlic. We only use confit garlic and we use the oil from confiting to cook with. And then we use the actual garlic for purees and fillings and all different kinds of like things that we use throughout the, the kitchen. But we just start with that base 
of understanding that if something's going to be really great, it has to have a ton of umami in it, a ton of glutamates. And we need to focus on ingredients that use those things so that way we can create the best food possible. That is such a great answer. Thank you. I'm so it's glad I asked. It's a rambling no, question. It's, yeah, rambling answer. Yeah, fair, <laughs> fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. And I love that. Can you talk a little bit more about the garlic and why you confit? Yeah. it? Like, what is the downside of using raw garlic? What What am I missing? There? Have you ever walked into a restaurant and smelled burnt garlic? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that means you're in the wrong place. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's yeah. the end of it. I mean, like, literally, you can you can control the cooking of the garlic by confiting it. And, and we use uh, non-GMO, non-GMO canola oil from Canada. And, <laughs> and very simply put, it's just like, it's a better product. It carries the flavor. It has a high smoke point that doesn't change during cone feeding, right? It's like when French chefs confit ducks and then they use the fat to cook in. It's the same idea. There's a Real reason nice. why that richness and that those, those flavors carry through, right? And by starting with that as a base level for everything that we do, it's like, oh, we're starting at level one rather than starting from the base, right? Like if we make a vinaigrette, we'll sprinkle in a little bit of garlic oil into it, right? Like we also use like specialized things like cold pressed lemon oil. Rather than like put lemon juice on something, we'll actually use this cold pressed lemon oil and that will actually give you all the flavor of the zest and all the the nose appeal of that. So when it gets here, because you taste lemon juice on your tongue, but you when you have an old fashioned you get the the orange oil in your nose, right? That's right. Yeah. Right? Or you have a martini and you have a lemon twist that goes into your nose, right? Yeah. That actually, you have more flavor sensing in your nose than you do on your tongue. Wow. So it's like, it's yeah. and it's literally, it's like, this can taste salt, sweet, bitter, spice. Yeah. You know, and your mommy. That's what your right? doing, yeah. But yeah. your nose is doing everything else. So like when we finish uh, like our pastas, a lot of times we finish them with fresh basil. Like literally just throw like, we don't sprinkle it on top. Mm-hmm. We throw it in the pasta last second. So that way you get this amazing floral punch where a sauce is just cooked. And then not like with those ingredients, those, those actual like polyphenols are gone. They're gone. Cause they're, cause they're, you know, they're all based in your nose, not on your tongue. So like, those are the things that are like, you, you get down to that part of it. And then you also look at just the fact that, you have to eat it. Like, oh, there's the other thing is like, we eat our food here. I know it's a crazy idea that chefs don't yeah. do. She- chefs don't eat their own food. We constantly eat and evaluate our food to see if it can be better to make sure the standards are being held up. And that is 100% why I, I think it's really important that chefs and managers and servers and cooks and dishwashers even eat in the restaurants. And it's not just so that way they can show that they work at this great restaurant and impress their girlfriend or do whatever, but it's like, we're here to show you why it's important that the plates are clean, why, you know, the food is cooked properly, why the service matters, why small bits of hospitality that we're able to inject into the service are, are important. We, we kind of like, we've seen so many people lose touch of that in this new post pandemic age of restaurants, the QR codes and the bullshit that's happening isn't good for us. No, it's, I've said this so often on this podcast that as much as my fascination and obsession is with food and cooking, what this all comes back to for me anyway, is human connection, right? It brings us closer together. Thousand percent. Yeah. Uh, and I've got to say, we had a couple of great touch points this morning on exactly that point. Mm -hmm. Our server 
super knowledgeable with the menu, happy to answer questions and was able to steer. Like yes. say, okay, you want savory, uh, maybe you want a little bit of sweet, let's mm-hmm. go here. And then we had Dylan, yep. I think it's Dylan, mm-hmm. came out from from the kitchen just to check in on us, right? How is everything? You need anything? Just yell. I'm right, literally, I'm right there. Right. I'm right behind you. So yeah. it, it wraps it up with this cozy hum- humanity. Well, I mean, Dylan's been with me. Dylan started, we met over 10 years ago. Uh, we did an outstanding in the field dinner at Coachella. He was working for Jason Full Love, and we kind of connected. And then I opened a restaurant in Southern California called Superba, and he came on as one of my line cooks. Great guy. I think he was like 19 at the time, <laughs> right? Now he's, uh, now he's, that was two years after that. So probably I met him when he was 19. Now he's 20, he's 30 almost. Man, that guy's <laughs> going great. But he came over, um, and I, when I got back to Vegas, I found out he was here. He actually was going to UNLV for hospitality school. And so he was bored out of his mind because, I mean, he's already worked in restaurants. You know, he's already seen, like, he's already worked at good restaurants. So it's like, not like, uh, he has to learn anything from that part, but like he, he wanted to get the degree and do all that. So I was like, okay, cool. I was like, what do you want to do? He's like, I'm really into bread baking. Uh, and I'm like, well, I just happened to open in a restaurant and coming from Superba where our bread baking program was pretty epic. Um, we were like, we're going to have the best bread in Vegas. And he was like, I'm in. I'm like, cool. Here's 13 bucks an hour, dude. <laughs> Good luck. Get at it. Yeah. And and honestly, like we started R&Ding uh, our bread probably six months before the restaurant opened. Yeah. And he did that R&D with me. And we worked with John Arena over at uh, Metro Pizza, who's just an amazing, <laughs> he says he's a pizza guy. The guy's an amazing baker who understands more about sourdough than most people who bake for a living. Right. He's just, he's an epically amazing Yoda of a human being. Um, and he was so kind to let us actually work out of this space and just, we would literally go in there with a loaf of bread, put it in his bread oven, watch it for 20 minutes, take it out, throw in the garbage, come back the next day. That's it. Like the, it's, it's, it's crazy. They were like, they thought we were crazy because every day at five o'clock we would walk in with this like banneton. Yeah. It's like ready to go. And we're like, all right, you ready? And then boom, put them on, put them in. Yep. Start over. Bam. Start we do over. this. Like you could just tell, like, you know, getting the oven spring, getting like developing our own sourdough. So we started using um our superba sourdough, which is uh based off of uh a sourdough which is now sixty years old, but was called fifty cent when we got it. So now he's sixty cent. 60 cent. Um <laughs> and then we combine that with uh going out and taking water from uh, we would put like wild uh, sage and cactuses in water and create our own flora and then added that to our original Same. dough yeah and so every once in a while we'll go do a rerun of that to reinforce the uh the natural uh flora and fauna that's around right. uh, las vegas because right. we're sitting in a giant bowl right that's completely yeah. covered in wild sage yeah so yeah. it's pretty amazing so it should yeah. be in the bread it should that's, be right that's fantastic okay i wasn't gonna ask this but now i am now that we're on the topic of okay. bread and i got a bunch of bread geek uh, <laughs> friends back Good. home so this is for them can you tell us about you you uh Mentioned it to me when we were in the new space. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the proof of retarder that you've oh, got man. coming in. So we, so we're working with the Empire Baking Company, but we're we're gonna have a five deck stone steam injected mini tube oven from Empire Baking Company, which is now called Maestro out of New York. But then we're also getting uh, a couple of the brand new Hera proof of retarders from Bongard and the for bread nerds. 
it's like using a rationale oven to create a proofing setting. So like literally you can set it up. So you put your bread in, it retards it, it warms it, it proofs it. You take it out and you could put it into the oven like instantaneously. And you can create different settings for different breads. And it's all off of programs that are touchscreen. It's amazing. Like, like I remember sitting with Lincoln Carson at Superba trying to figure out how the proofer retarder box that we had worked because it had number, it had some numbers in Fahrenheit, some numbers in Celsius, some, and they were doing different programs. So every once in a while it would just blink and change. And like, like the, the proofer box would go to 95 degrees and it would cool down to 40 degrees. And we'd be like, what the hell is going on? And like, so they're like basically taking iPhone technology and putting it into industrial equipment finally. Wow. So it's amazing. It really is just top of the line. And these are coming out of France. They're actually going through uh, Victoria in Canada. So you can actually get them. They're from Bongard. And let me tell you, get them. Get them. Get them. They're amazing. Uh, All right. Yeah. Might be a little more horsepower than my home kitchen needs, but I look. They're only only 20 grand a piece. I was trying to. (laughs) (laughs) My wife will be thrilled. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You don't don't need a new car. What you need is a new proofer Proofer. to make one loaf of bread. (laughs) That's right. Well, you know, a couple times a week. Right. right, Exactly. I mean, in the long run, it saves you money. (laughs) That's right. We're making money. (laughs) Right. Exactly. But, uh, but you know, it's like, uh, just flowers in general. Like we started with that we are working with central milling out of southern utah they're uh 100% non-gmo organic uh they mill every two weeks where like our uh our wonderful pandemic friends who started using uh king arthur flour great guys love those guys to death they mill twice a year they mill right. summer wheat and winter wheat right and then they store it yep and i get it but the enzymes and the flavonoids are gone. So when you get our bread and you taste it, and you're like, man, it tastes like cereal. Oh, it has all these crazy notes in it. Is that the sourdough? Is that like, no, it's actually just the flour because the flour is 64% of the total weight of the product. <laughs> so it's like, it's like getting good products, treating your uh, starters correctly. And then, and then people always say like, oh, bread is so hard. Bread is a method and bread is about feeding cycles. And it's about understanding your starter, like, as when we were in this little room, we had to change the amount of starter that we were using from 5% to 12% to 20%, depending on the temperature and the part of the year. Of course. Yeah, so now that we have it, yeah, it all changes the way that your starters react and the way that they live their natural life cycle. So we have to make sure that we're on top of that. And so we watch the temperature of the room that we're not producing the bread in. And so we make sure that we have the most stable corner uh, that we do all of our starters in. And it's been working out much better. So we've been able to like level that out and be way more consistent with our bread. And that's a huge thing. For sure. Yeah. And now it's going to a whole new level in the new space. And in, the new, in the new space, it's going to be, wow. Yeah. We're really excited. <laughs> Well, Chef, listen, I want to take you to the Las Vegas Strip because as much as I am, as I said earlier, obsessed about food and yep. about cooking, I've got a deep abiding love for Las Vegas, as my, yeah. as my listeners know. And part of, and I love the arts district. I love downtown, but I also got some time for the Strip. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as a tourist, you come in, and that's what, that's what Vegas is, right? For so many people who come here, you see that first. You've worked at some amazing properties on the Strip. You've worked with some amazing chefs, you were, uh, Bradley Ogden, Michael Mina, can you pick an experience, one or two experiences from whichever restaurant you like 
Can you tell us a story that could only be a Las Vegas? Like this could only happen in the Las Vegas Strip. I I'll, I'll, I have two. I have two really good ones. All okay. right. The first one is short and simple. I was 14 and a half years old when I started cooking. I started taking high school classes. When I was 16, I became eligible for an internship. I wanted to go to the Mirage. They had Mirage internships available. I was like, I want to go to the Mirage. I did everything I could to get into the Mirage. So at 16, till when I graduated, I did two hours of school and then I went to work. And, and here's the thing is like, I was supposed to only stay three hours. I would work 12 to 13 hours a day. I was a psycho and I did it for free. I did it for free for a year and a half. And I was super honored to be a part of that the they they were like everyone thought i was crazy my friends thought i was crazy because i didn't want to hang out and go to parties my uh you know my teachers thought i was crazy because i you know got a 1380 on my sats and could have gone to pepperdine very easily and i was like yeah no i don't want to do that i want to go cook and they all thought i was crazy so i actually got um a job when i was 17 years old at the mirage as a cook's helper and i was given that opportunity by luke paladino who was one of my first uh, chef mentors. He had just gotten like kicked out of the country for being like the best chef in Venice. And then like, yeah. So he, so I was like, okay, cool. So this guy's amazing. He was super cool. He's like 30 years old. He like the rings and the badass. He was <laughs> fucking cool. And he was mean as shit. I loved him. Right. And then, uh, and he took me under his wing, but I would have never been given an opportunity like that anywhere else to do an apprenticeship, uh, in America if I wasn't here in Las Vegas. And if people like Bart Mahoney and, uh, and Gustav, had convinced Steve Wynn that it was a good thing to have this internship. So I'm super grateful for that opportunity and it got my foot in the door. And that was a huge, huge, huge win for me. And and that was at the time. What year was that? That was 1996 when I started. Okay. Yeah. So the Mirage, I think opened 89, something Mm -hmm. like that, but it was, it was was before Bellagio. That's right. It was like, it was, it was the best. It was the place. It was the place in Vegas that anybody wanted to work who there or anybody. And I ended up working at the fine dining restaurant. And if you went right down that hotline, they took those cooks and that sous chef and that chef, and they were the chefs who were running Bellagio. Right, of course. Right? Right, yeah. And I was learning from these guys, the best of the best. It was an amazing opportunity, and I knew it was an amazing opportunity. I didn't understand what it was, but I just had to do had it. Had to be there. Right. So then the other opportunity I got was I got to join the team at Bradley Ogden. And uh, this is the restaurant that is the only restaurant in Las Vegas to ever win um, a James Beard Award on the Strip. Like as far as like we won best new restaurant in America, um, the team was hand selected. It had just a litany of chefs. I think we had seven or eight people who worked at Charlie Trotter's in uh, Chicago. In Chicago, wow! I mean, like it was a really, really great space, and it's where I fell in love with seasonal cooking. And I left Aqua, which is now Michael Mina, to go there. And funny enough, all my friends who I worked with at Bradley Ogden now run the Michael Mina's company. <laughs> so it's it's funny. Like, you know, I, I kind of like bounced back and forth for a little while, but that year and a half I was at uh, Bradley Ogden before I went to Alex to open Win Win and work with Alex Strada. That was an amazing time. It was super empowering. It was very hard work. We were working 14 to 16 hours a day. We we're sleeping in the chef's room. Like it, like literally like you would open up the cupboards and there would be like pillows for you to like literally sleep on the ground, get up and go back to work. Wow. Right. And, yeah. and once again, things that could not happen today happened there because people believed and the team believed in something more than 
what was outlined in the rigorous boxes of the corporate world. Yeah. Right. And I think the one thing I will say is Las Vegas has lost 99.5% of that. Uh, yeah. And I think it's, it's being it's, rebuilt. The culture is being rebuilt off stream. Yes. Okay. And that's exactly where I want to go next mm-hmm. because that's what, that's one of the things that I tell anybody who will listen to me about Las Vegas. And I say, this is my pitch. I say, look, you've got the strip that's got bazillions of dollars and they've got the celebrity chefs there and they've got the endless budgets mm-hmm. and they're, they're able to build the infrastructure and train people really well. But when those people reach a certain point, many of them decide, you know what, I'm going to go open my own place off strip. And I think of you, I think of uh, Jamie Tran at Black Sheep, I think of Brian Howard, you know, so many people who have migrated off strip. So coming back to the Arts District, coming back to off strip dining, what are your advantages here? And I think the corporate box ticking or lack of it would Mm -hmm. would be one of them. And then as part of that, can you talk about the realities of the restaurant business and food cost and and costs and profitability that we touched on before because i i know from our discussion half an hour ago that you're you're passionate on this yeah but i think it has to be a different math in the arts district and downtown right than it is on the strip yeah. in some ways better maybe in some ways worse i don't know in terms of menu pricing or something but, but what are the what are the pros and maybe the downsides of, of trying to operate a profitable business off strip well we can start with the downside which is we don't have five thousand rooms above us Right. We don't have a captured audience. So we have to earn every single guest every single day. One of the other, I'll start to get these negatives out of the way because there's a lot of positives I want to talk about. <laughs> um, that's number one. So we don't have a captured audience. So we have to earn our way every single day. We also don't have a lot of the infrastructure where it's like, oh, this guy wants king crab. Sorry, we don't have it. So we're a real restaurant. We have to say no a lot. Where in the hotels, you just lost a million dollars on a hand of blackjack. You're gonna get whatever you want, right? Right. Yeah. And, and that's where and that's where that ethos comes from. The positives far outweigh the negatives. Uh, being off strip, you're your own boss, right? You're not handed a budget. You have a bank account. And being an independent operator, when I opened this restaurant, I had five thousand dollars left in my bank account. I had to basically steal 13 grand from my sister seriously to pay our first payroll. And I paid her back. Don't get me wrong, (laughs) but she was not happy about it. Right. You know, I, I, our first GM Craig, I paid him $500 a week and he was Uber driving while we were opening. Right. That's, that's where we were. That's, that's how we did it. I mean, we really bootstrapped it. I mean, the room that we're sitting in, this is $670,000 of, like literally everything that I got from my Aunt Esther, everything I had saved because I was going to buy a house in Venice before I decided to move back to Vegas. And I have to say that like, there's no game plan. So you're not like, you're not handed the set of rules that you have to play by. So the thing is just make it the best it can be. And the passion that goes into that and the people you're able to bring up and the things you're able to do for people that you couldn't do on the strip far outweighs like anything that they could ever offer. You know, like I've bought cars for my employees, you know, uh, seriously, like I had a one lady, she was, you know, taking the bus during summer and walking home oh. in 120 degree heat. And I was like, you can't do this. I can't have you doing this. I won't let you do this. Pick out a car, spend this amount of money. I'll fucking buy you a car. Wow. Right. Yeah. No one ever did that for me. 
no one, it wouldn't even be a possibility or a thought for that to happen. And, you know, that's like, hey, we take care of our family. This is our people. These are our persons. Like, it's hard to work at Esther's as it is. But if you could do a year here, you'll never want to work anywhere else because you just fall in love with the fact that like, oh, wow, they're always changing. We're not like, we're not like locked in. Like the menus on the strip, 95% of those menus don't change. Yeah. Like Carbone's not doing anything new. (laughs) Nope. Right? They're just not. There's the they, they can't, right? They have too much volume. Their service is trained a certain way, blah, blah, blah. They can't do it, right? Most restaurants on the strip are like that. I will say that Michael Mia's restaurants are not like that. This is one of the few people who really, really gets it and is trying, like, obviously moving off strip, seeing like him move off strip is a huge win. When it comes to the actual financials of a restaurant, I got lucky because I worked at independent restaurants in Los Angeles for 10 years. And by doing that, connecting with farmers, getting the right product, understanding what to pay for it, right? How to help them and help yourself at the same time. Like we buy Barbara's uh, from Tutti Fruity, her number two tomatoes to make sauce with. We buy those because normally she'd just be throwing them out, right? But now we'll take them and we'll make fucking sauce out of them or do something special with them or juice them or do something else. And then that lowers our cost. It pays her something she was going to turn into trash or biodegrade. And now all of a sudden we have a product that no one else can have at a price that no one else can get it at. Right. So we're helping each other. So we have to work symbiotically with our farmers, which we I've, I learned how to do by working with the farmers, by going to that market and getting to know them for 10 years. That's like literally that's how you do it. Right. So we have that advantage. Hotel restaurants don't have that advantage. So we were able to do that. Being off strip overhead is not crazy. It's not like LA where it's six to $10 a square foot. Right. Like I said, like our original, uh, our original lease here was $1.30 a square foot, which means that our occupancy costs is, uh, right now at, at Esther's is sub 1%. Wow. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, it's amazing. Right. And that's the thing is like, I could have taken the spot on the end that's bigger. But I was scared that the rent was going to be too much because it was $3,000 a month. Right. 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 It's laughable. It's It's laughable now. But like when you're coming into a place that has open, like when we got here, there was nothing but open space. And it's wild to think where we are now and where we're going. And like I was saying, there's like not, there's, there's a plan for abject failure. There's almost no plan for success. Right. Like in the restaurant business, there is no plan for being successful because everyone expects you to fail. Right. Right. And, and you know how you do it? You don't take a paycheck for two and a half years. That's what I did. Yeah. I literally, you know, that's it. Like people don't know that. Right. And now we're at a different place Yeah. and we're really lucky, but we're thankful and we're grateful and everyone in here is motivated and they care about it and taking them with us. We move people up. You know, I have, Four sous chefs who were dishwashers. All right. right? And here they are. And here they are. And they're awesome. And they're kicking butt. You know, that's what you need. You know where that can't happen? The strip. Because you're a dishwasher for five years. You become a cook's helper for five years. You get to a you go to a cook. You're there for 10 years. Right. And then instead of becoming a sous chef, you stay a cook to get the retirement from the union. Uh, It's a trap. It's a trap. And it's like, all right, well, you just took 20 years of your life to do nothing with it. Right. Right. It's wild. Right. And this is a passion business and sucking all the passion out of it creates exactly what you get on the strip. 
you get $95 fucking stakes that we can do here for 68. That's it. Yeah. That is really powerful. Chef, I've got two more questions. My, my second, <laughs> second to last one, as okay. I know you guys are both busy. My second to last one is related to food cost. And it's what, so a lot of my listeners are chefs, uh, but many are people who, like me, no longer in the uh, hospitality industry in any professional way, but who enjoy going to restaurants. So for those people, what's a tip? What can those people, what can I as a consumer do both to support restaurants and I like to put this in selfish terms. What can I do that in my own interest is going to make my experience better? How do I approach a restaurant in a way, like just the way that you approach a farmer and create this relationship? How do I be a consumer who doesn't just waltz in and demand what he demands and pay the check and get out? How can I enrich my own experience? Once again, the, the very simple answer is come in with no expectations. Come in, like, I mean, like everyone reads the, like, if you read our Yelp page, we get banged up, not because of what we do, but because of what people think that we do, what they've read. It didn't live up to the hype. I'm like, good. Right. That's Great. not what we were doing. That's not, we, we don't do the hype. We're not, we're not a flash in the pan restaurant. We're a neighborhood Italian restaurant. We make all of our stuff. So what you can do as a guest or a lover of food is show up and just be psyched to be there. Right. And I mean, just like, if you're excited about it, everyone else is going to be excited about it. Your server today is Idalis. Idalis started with me. The reason why she knows so much about the food, she ran food in this restaurant for three years. Okay. Before we had to convince her and manipulate her into becoming a server. Like literally it was like, it was like, Oh, I don't want to do that. I don't like talking to people. I'm like, all you do all day is talk. Right. Like, please, like, learn the booze and make more money. Yeah. Right? Get to it. And, like, that's, for me, it's like, she's so good about talking about our food because she knows it at such an in-depth level. She's watched hundreds of thousands of dishes go across that pass. That's why she's so good at it. She knows the food better than the chefs. <laughs> Seriously. Like, yeah. if something's not garnished properly, she's like, I can't use that. That has to be changed. Redo that. Good for right. her. Right. And yeah. she, 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 cause no, that's no. the thing is like, we, like when you're in the real weeds and like yeah. you're really, I mean, it seems like we only have a few seats here, but I mean, like when you're oh, cooking out of that little tiny box of a kitchen, it's a pressure cooker. Yeah. She's that little valve on top of the pressure cooker. And now she's in the front of the house and she's making amazing strides, not only in her life to change her life, but she's jazzed about every single person that comes in here because she gets to talk to him about something she loves and knows about. Exactly. And we, and we are the benefactors of that. And yeah. that brings us back to the human connection. Right? Absolutely. 100%. Right. Chef, I'm going to have to let you go. But okay. the last, last question, I love asking chefs this. I usually try to, get, to give a little bit more notice, but I, I don't think you're going to be phased by the question. Right. <laughs> question is this, what is a dish? I want, I don't, I'm not going to even call it a recipe. What's okay. a dish that I can cook? I get home at the end of the day. I'm tired. What's something you can describe in like a minute that I can cook in... 20 to 30 minutes and I'm going to have a delicious meal. Okay. (laughs) It's instantaneously. I like literally, this is the, this is the, and it's funny because it's not on our menu at dinner service, but we still sell 20 a night. Right. right. It's wild. It's wild. Actually. It's crazy. I mean, it's all about ingredients. And I mean, like everyone's got pasta in their, in their pantry. Everyone has it. I don't care if it's gluten-free or anything. Pecorino sits great. You can just grate it peppercorns 
And that's the entire recipe. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about like, like, like nobody doesn't have those ingredients at their house. Yeah. Right. It's something that is a bowl of happiness and it makes you feel good while you eat it. And it's, and it literally, it's like a warm hug at the end of that. Like I've just had the shit kicked out of me at this restaurant for 12, 13, 15 hours. I go home. I realize I haven't eaten anything all day. And I've been cooking pasta all day long. And the only thing I can think of is like, I'm just going to make some pasta. And like sleep on the couch. Right. <laughs> like it's just that it's just like, yeah, that, that, the, the richness of it, the flavor of it, the humbleness of it, and the ability to elevate something like that. That's just so simple, but good like that. And like aglio olio. So simple pastas. I mean, like a little pepperoncino, a little bit, you know, a parsley. And then just like nice, softly cooked garlic. I mean, like those are the things like you can just do that. And if you can't make it work with three ingredients and pasta water, don't try to do more. Just work on that. Yeah. Like, and, it, and like if you can create comfort out of that, you can make anything. That's that, that's it. That's it. That is inspiring. Chef James Trees, thank you so much, man. It's been a real Thanks, pleasure. Man. Appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you, man. Cheers. Thanks, Chef, so much for taking the time for that great talk. And thank you for that great brunch. I am so looking forward to visiting Esther's in your new space. Okay, I am going to wrap things up. Do things seem extra busy to you these days? They're, something is in the air, it feels like. There just seems to be a lot going on. But in the midst of all of that, a lot going on, I would love to hear from you. So if you've got a question for the show or a comment, maybe a guest suggestion, a topic idea... Do get in touch. You know where you can find me. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok. Those are all at Cheftimony. On LinkedIn, you will find me under Graham McLennan. You can always send me an email. Those go to graham at cheftimony.com. And as always, I do appreciate written reviews, particularly on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and or just leave a star rating for the show. And if you think somebody you know might like Cheftimony, please send it their way. I'd really appreciate that. Okay. That really is it for today. Thank you for being here with me. I'm Graham McLennan, and I'll see you again soon, right here on Chef Demonia.